This presentation is from Design Research 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. A little bit of storytelling now. Please join me in welcoming Sarah to the stage. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Sarah, and I am a freelance design researcher and a UXN service designer. Um, I work mainly in uh, international and local development, so I've worked with uh, large multinational organizations like the World Bank, um, with global NGOs like the International Rescue Committee, or Population Services International, I don't know if any of these mean anything to you, or with just local uh, sort of region or city-specific uh, NGOs on a variety of topics from healthcare to financial inclusion, human trafficking, civil rights, you name it. Um, so that's a little bit about myself. Um, I'm from Morocco. Currently, I work in uh, Amman in Jordan. This is my first time in Melbourne. This is my first time in Australia. Um, I realize I'm really nervous, and I think I was like trying to uh, like understand why I was nervous. I've, I've done public speaking before. Like, why am I this nervous? I realize maybe it's because I, I've just arrived here a few days ago, and I really like Australia, and I really love to come back. And for some reason, I feel like if I bomb this presentation, you're going to go and tell the immigration officers to not let me back in. So please don't do that. Whatever happens. All right. So um, today I'm going to talk about the power of proverbial expression in design research. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> See what I did there? Not only did I use this idiom to make a little joke, but I also wanted to use uh, something that is very specific, this expression of rolling off the tongue. It, as far as I know, only exists in English and doesn't exist in other languages. And that's sort of the topic that I want to talk to you about today in this presentation. So when we think about conducting design research um, in settings or with people with whom we don't share a common language, a lot of the times we think about it as how do we overcome the language barriers that this situation presents, right? Um, I don't deny that. That is absolutely true. However, uh, I am trying to make the case for why uh, some of these hard-to-translate idioms or proverbs, which uh, arguably are the hardest-to-access parts of any language, uh, can represent an opportunity uh, in the work that we do as design researchers. Bear with me. Um, and I will be doing so by using a specific example of a project that I've been working on for the past 10 months in Niger. It happens to be right there in the middle of um, uh, Africa. It's a landlocked country in Western Africa. Um, and the, a lot of the communities there speak this language called Hausa. Uh, Hausa is uh, a Chadic language spoken by 70 million people as their first language and an additional 40 million as their second language. Those were, are going to be my only Wikipedia facts, I promise. Um, and uh, it also happens to be a language that is extremely rich in proverbial wisdom. Um, and a little, another thing that I want to talk about in terms of context is what the project was about. Um, so uh, in Niger, I was researching uh, people's behaviors and attitudes towards contraception, family planning, reproductive health. Um, and the interesting thing about this project being in Niger is Niger has the highest fertility rate uh, in the world uh, with uh, 7.6 uh, children per woman. And in the specific region that I was doing this project in called Zinder, uh, actually that number is at 8.5 per woman. Um, and uh, just to, I wanted to sort of see how to translate 
what that statistic means to the local communities. And uh, the, the best way to describe it is this Hausa word, rurusa, which actually is really hard to translate. And it means pregnancies that are frequent and really close together in time, that they have a huge toll in like the mother's health and well-being. So this is such a big problem that they actually have a word, a single word to describe this entire thing. Um, so this is a little bit about the context uh, for the project. So um, I wanted to showcase some examples uh, where I found that the use of proverbs can be particularly helpful or insightful um, uh, in doing design research. And I will start by showing how it allowed us as, as a team uh, to better convey our design objectives to the communities um, or with whom we worked. So we were actually really fortunate uh, to have team members from our local partners, uh, which is PSI, Population Services International in Niger, that were native to the Zinder region. And as many of you know, if you go somewhere to do research, probably should have locals with you um, to navigate um, the, not only sort of to translate the language, but obviously also to translate the cultural and social norms that, you're, uh, that you have to deal with. Um, and so this was our case. We had the team that was native to the region. We also hired local fixers. And so we went around to have all these interviews and courtesy meetings with village chiefs and religious leaders and uh, healthcare providers, you name it. Every single time we would go into this meeting, they would look at our colleagues, our local colleagues, and they would ask them about us, the, the strangers in the team. And our local colleagues would answer with this proverb, the Dangari Agantigari, which means it's through a villager that one earns the trust of a villager. And it was kind of their way of saying, it's okay, they're with me. That was like the house version of that. Um, then another interesting thing to know about Zinder is that it's, it really is a hotbed for international NGOs, not only on the reproductive health uh, issues, but Niger is one of the least developed and resource poor countries in the world. Um, and so any global or regional NGO is going to have a presence there. Um, and so what comes with that is that a lot of the local communities are very much used to seeing um, NGOs and people wanting to talk to them. And they come to expect something from those interactions. And typically those interactions in the sort of traditional aid sector kind of look like, okay, I'm an NGO worker and I've come in and I've got some sort of thing that I want to offer. It's like a good or a service. And I've talked to somebody and I'm like, do you want this good or service? And they're like, yeah, I do. And I'm like, how do you feel about it? Obviously, they're going to be like, I love it. I want it. And that's the interaction. So when we were trying to come in and be like, oh, actually, I want to hear your experience about this. And please tell me your point of view. And I want to learn uh, your truth an honest um, you know, uh, perspective about the specific topic, most of the time we were faced with some of the most incredulous uh, reactions from community members just because they were not used to doing this. Um, and it was actually so hard that uh, one of our, it, it was only when we spoke to one of, a young man actually, and one of our colleagues told him this proverb that was, whoever stays in the room is the only one who knows where the water leaks, that it kind of clicked and then we, ended up using it in all of our introductions with all of the team members. What this proverb really means is you can't really understand a problem unless you're on the inside. And that's the whole purpose of sort of human-centered design or doing research, design research is I don't know. They know. So how do I sort of get and transfer that knowledge in a way that 
is authentic to their experience and doesn't like bring in my biases. And so, yeah, we found this proverb and then we ended up using it in all of our, um, in all of our introductions. Similarly, uh, so at this point, I was like, wait, we've used this twice. We've got to keep using this more. Um, I, I've tried to sort of intentionally let my colleagues know what are some of the other ways that we can communicate what we do to uh, communities so that it makes sense to them. Uh, and we did the same thing with uh, uh, when we were trying to introduce the concept of participant consent. Um, and so we used this uh, proverb that I can't really pronounce it, uh, but it translates as you cannot force a dog to run. I think there's an, there's an Ang English equivalent to it. What is it? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Is that a thing? Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm not a native English speaker. So, um, so yeah, so this is how we ended up introducing the concept of, of consent. Uh, obviously, like any uh, team of design researchers would come in with these you know, um, consent forms that had these scripts of how we should introduce it, and they were all IRB approved. They were approved by the institutional review boards or the ethical review boards, both from the NGO and the country. We threw that out of the window, we used our new language, but the whole purpose was we kind of stayed true to the spirit of the law, we just didn't stick to the letter of the law. Um, so now, the, this next set of examples that I wanna uh, introduce is actually more about how Proverbs helped us nuance what we learned from the community and enrich our findings as, as design researchers. Um, so one of the first things that we that was very evident to us when we started doing the work in Zinder were, were obviously the gender dynamics um, that um, are prevalent in those communities. Uh, these gender dynamics position men as the main decision makers on every single thing, including women's health decisions. Um, and so in most cases, um, in any couple, the men will have the final say in choosing whether or not his or his wife's his wife or wives um, are uh, use any kind of contraception and what kind of contraception uh, that would be if that's the case. Um, but that being said, it doesn't mean that women didn't have influence over these choices. Um, and that's because women talk to women, whether when they work in the field, whether when they go to the health center, whether when they meet uh, at marriage or baptism ceremonies, they share their experiences with the co contraceptive method that they use and they trust each other's experiences. And so we were actually talking with, again, a young father who uh, wanted his wife to slow down um, and sort of wait between pregnancies because he was feeling that she was um, just feeling the toll of, of um, the, um, the frequent pregnancies that she had just experienced. Um, but because in Niger, uh, having a lot of children is uh, a symbol of status, uh, a lot of women don't want to do that. And also, a lot of women, um, the only time that they're treated well in their life is when they're pregnant. So they like to be pregnant, and they like to have a lot of children. Um, and so this man wanted to convince his wife to slow down a little bit and wait between pregnancies, but he said, I couldn't. I just called on, my, uh, on the women and my family and my neighbors to go and talk to her. And so we asked him why, and he answered us with this proverb, which was, the herd of women is for women. And what he was trying to tell us was, I didn't experience the hardships that come with uh, being pregnant 
one child after another, and I can't speak to the health complications that come to that. The only thing I can do is try and convince the other women that I know around us that have gone through that experience to talk to my wife and to be able to convince her. Um, another interesting thing in Niger, um, I may not have mentioned this, but 94% of the population is Muslim and polygamy is a thing in Islam. Um, so men who are of Islamic faith are allowed to marry uh, up to four wives at a time. They can marry more if they divorce. Um, and uh, what that does in the specific region, which is very uh, agriculture-reliant and uh, agriculture there is threatened by persistent droughts, is that some of these young men are starting to become more aware of the financial implications that sort of having to care for a larger family with multiple wives and multiple children will have. And so it was interesting that in some of the villages, the, in all villages you have these sort of youth groups. They gather outside in these like little hut um, kind of structures called fadas. So some of these youth groups will start building their own sort of peer advocacy for other youth to like not marry more than one woman. Um, and we found that really interesting. Like we'd never seen this. We thought everybody, like obviously men wanted to marry more than one woman. I mean, the more the merrier. Um, but then um, when we asked them why, they told us the one that feels knows. Like I have married more than one woman and I've struggled to meet the needs of my wives and my children. I can't let my neighbor who's younger who hasn't done that yet to do the same thing. Otherwise, he's going to be in a pickle. So that was really interesting. And um, so keeping on sort of this topic of like finances and sort of being aware of the financial implications of some of these decisions, um, we, um, again, when we asked parents what was their desired number of children, and again, we, when I say parents, I mean teenagers, um, what, were, what was the number of children that they desired? Most responses will, will be between 10 and 13. And so when we were doing our research, we were trying to sort of figure out what are some of the arguments that could um, resonate with people um, in order to reduce that desired number of children or to think about using contraception in order to, to plan their families better. Um, and the, the argument that resonated the most was the financial one. Um, they, youth in particular, are st were starting to see that older generations were having a harder time um, sort of when I mean older generations, I mean fathers, because they're the um, main um, breadwinners, were having a harder time sort of caring for their families. And what happens was um, there's a lot of like spousal ab abandonment. So a man marries a wife, have a lot of children, can't pay the cost anymore, they just abandon them. Said wife and children go back to the parents who already don't make a lot of money to sustain the families. Um, and so this proverb in particular, we heard it so often um, probably two out of three people would tell us this, uh, which means just the right amount of water for the right amount of flour. Why the right amount of water for the right amount of flour? So that you make dough. You need the right amount of water, the right amount of flour, so that it's not too thick, so that it's not too sort of watery. And, f and that sort of um, exemplifies the concept of balance. And when they were telling us this proverb, it was to illustrate how they need to balance the number of desired children that they wanted to have with the means that they had as parents and what, whatever land they had, whatever sources of revenue um, they could make. 
Um, and this actually, this uh, finding was so uh, striking to us uh, that it ended up being uh, a main feature in the final designs of the program that we, uh, that we ended up uh, piloting. Uh, not only in sort of the branding, as you can see, you can see sort of uh, especially to the right there, uh, where we illustrated the concept of the scale with the water and the, and the flower and the resources and the family sort of members, uh, as well as some of the implications in terms of like food and shelter for the children. But also one of the main activities of the program ended up being sort of a financial budgeting and, uh, and planning activity for young families before they started having children to sort of understand some of these financial implications of having and raising children uh, beforehand. So following these examples, I wanted to conclude with three lessons that I've learned during this project and that I will carry with me moving forward and feel free to do the same if you want. Um, the first one, obviously, is the um, importance of engaging native speakers as members of the design research team. It may sound really trivial, but obviously nobody else is going to be able to contextualize some of these learnings uh, better than uh, native speakers. So this is really important. Um, the second one is when working with interpreters um, to really take the time to train them uh, on the value of literal translation. Uh, and sort of take the time when interpreting to not only tell us what is being said, but equally as importantly, how it is being said in those exact words. And then lastly, um, the third lesson was to sort of shy away from some of those rigid scripts that you go into a specific place with that were prepared in a different language and then translated. Uh, obviously, we don't want to go in blind, uh, and probably you would need to prepare them anyway for any kind of IRB approval. Uh, but sort of be prepared to be flexible and sort of change that content so that it works, so that it survives more than the first couple of interviews and that it makes sense for the people that you're um, having conversations with. So that's it for me. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts or any questions that you have. I realize the topic of Proverbs is, is probably not super fascinating or very relevant to your, to your work, but I'm happy to also take questions about um, you know, how do you do participant recruitment or incentives in a place like Niger or the design ethics of a project. I really can't talk about culture or change management or attitudinal surveys, so don't ask me questions about that, but that's it. Thank you, Sarah. We have time for a couple of questions. Anyone? Hi. 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 That was fantastic. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, uh, in like with the issues around translation that you were already talking about, how did you know that the translations you were getting of the proverbs were understandable by you in your context? Um, I think I. I mean, I personally have an approach to working with. Um, so the second lesson that I mentioned with the training of the interpreter, I always do at the beginning of any project when I try to hire local interpreters. Um, and that has come from experience from previous projects where the translation posed a problem in sort of understanding the work. And so I've just, I, I'm very unflexible about this point. If I'm working with an interpreter, I just really make sure that um, they translate it literally to me. And you can tell from like the length. If somebody's talking for like three minutes and then they give you like a one sentence, you're like, that, that was not it. Um, so um, sort of doing these like mock interviews with them at the beginning of the training so that they get uh, to the, like they get the hang of it with teammates or with whatever from the office so that um, we're used to sort of that dynamic and really taking the time to do it right. 
Hi, uh, thanks for that. Um, I was just curious uh, with regards to how you recruit participants. Uh, my experience with working on the ground with NGOs is uh, if they've had a long presence there, they've usually developed strong relationships with those people. And sometimes there's a bit of a kind of a business model that people kind of understand, oh, if we say yes to this project, we're likely to get more funding. So the NGOs are kind of priming uh, participants. So I was curious about your considerations around that. Uh, yes. For that specific reason, we did not go through Population Services International to recruit our participants, uh, just because we, we realized that it was going to come with whatever reputation that the NGO had and whatever past experiences people had with the, with the NGO in terms of accessing, I don't know, contraception, whatever services that they had provided. Um, and so we, we went in completely blind, and we started um, sort of recruiting uh, completely from scratch. We utilized a combination of, you know, purposive sampling and snowball techniques to just, like, find random people, whatever we popped in. Um, but, yeah, we, we definitely did not want to use any sort of existing um, or any, any participants that had existing relationships with our local partner. All right. Please join me in thanking Sarah. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2018. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.